Uh, good morning. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 20. Put, put something there in Genesis 20. That's the passage we're going to work with this morning. But before we get to that, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 12. So maybe mark Genesis chapter 20, keep Genesis chapter 12 opened up there. If you're on your phone, that's just a, a couple quick taps and swipes and, and you can move from one to the other. We've said this over the course of the series in Genesis so far, but it's worth saying again that one of the beauties of the Bible is that it is consistent in its commitment to describing the full character of who God is while simultaneously depicting the full reality of the human condition. So everything you need to know about God is stated and displayed throughout Scripture. And everything that you ought to already know about humanity because you know yourself is both narrated and described. And kind of the wonder, the beauty of the gospel story is the way that what ought to be two irreconcilable things, the, the wonder and majesty and, and holiness and glory of God alongside the broken sinfulness of humanity. The wonder of the gospel is that those two things can be brought together. And they've been brought together thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In continuing to both describe God and who he is and depict humanity, Genesis chapter 20 is a story that shows, again, Abraham's brokenness and sinfulness, his lack of faith. Genesis 19 showed us sin outside the people of God, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Genesis 20 is going to remind us again that there is also sin inside the people of God as we see that within the life of Adam. He, or Abraham, he is going to trot out what is a familiar script that we've already seen. In a new location, Abraham is going to do a song and dance that he has done once before in a previous location. If I don't know how familiar everyone is with Shakespeare, but there are, there are innumerable modern interpretations of Shakespearean plays. Probably the most prominent is that West Side Story is just Romeo and Juliet, the exact same thing. Um, more sort of contemporary il illustrations of that would be that She's the Man, the movie, is the Twelfth Night, just poured it over into a modern context. If you've ever seen uh, 10 Things I Hate About You. That is the taming of the shrew, just with a modern interpretation. We take the same script, we repackage it in a new way, and we just put it out there and people spend their money to go see it. Abraham is going to take the same script and he's just gonna put it out there in a new situation. And so before we get to Genesis chapter 20, I'm gonna read you where we've already seen this. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. It says this. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram, this is pre-name change, went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife Sarai. 
So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now here is your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. Flip over to Genesis chapter 20. Catch the similarities and the differences as we read this. I'm gonna read the whole chapter, 18 verses. Genesis 20, starting in verse one. From there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he was staying in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar took Sarah, or had Sarah brought to him. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, you are about to die because of the woman you have taken, for she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, would you destroy a nation even though it is innocent? Didn't he himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours. Early in the morning, Abimelech got up, called his servants together, and personally told them all these things. And the men were terrified. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, what have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you have brought such enormous guilt on me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. Abimelech also asked Abraham, what made you do this? Abraham replied, I thought, there is absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took flocks and herds and male and female servants, gave them to Abraham and returned his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, look, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, look, I am giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a verification of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slave so that they could not bear children. Oh, so that they could bear children. For the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Would you open our our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears, Lord, that we might learn something about you, that we might learn something about ourselves and humanity, that we might be reminded once again of the full astonishment of your grace and mercy to us. God, teach us about our sin. Teach us about your grace. Help us to see Christ clearly this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I think the easiest way to understand what happens in Genesis chapter 20 is by doing a little Venn diagram type comparison with Genesis chapter 12. There are some scholarly and popular debates as to whether this story in Genesis chapter 20 is is more or less a repackaging or a regurgitation of some vaguely familiar instance that happened to Abraham that they've put forward in both places. 
I think the stories, though, involving similar construction have significant and meaningful differences, though, such that we can trust that they're two different accounts because Genesis continues to advance its narrative purpose, which is that God is going to be faithful to his promises regardless of humanity's sinfulness. And so kind of the big picture when you take Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 is that Abraham's instance of sin in Egypt is a pattern of sin in Gerar. What you saw in Egypt and said, oof, that was kind of ugly, is actually something you come to discover is a pattern of sin for Abraham. Let's just work through this. We'll take kind of like 10 categories here that we can think about the two passages. The first obvious one is that this takes place in two different locations and involves two different rulers. Genesis chapter 12, Egypt and Pharaoh. Genesis chapter 20, Gerar and a man named Abimelech. Gerar is east of what is, what is modern day Gaza. That is to say it's kind of in south central Israel. Another way to think about it is it's south of Jerusalem. One of the things that's a little bit confusing here is that this is actually the first of three different Abimelechs in the Old Testament. There's Abimelech here. There's an Abimelech that interacts with Isaac, appears to be a different individual. And in 1 Chronicles, there's a third individual named Abimelech. The question is, is that three guys with the same name, like John, John, and John? Or is Abimelech a title? It literally translates to, my father, Abba, is the king. Melech. So is Abimelech a title for a ruler, kind of like Pharaoh is the king of Egypt and Caesar is the ruler of Rome? Abimelech is the name that they give the ruler of this particular area, or is this a person's name? No one's entirely sure. What we do know is that this takes place in a definitively different location. There's also the awareness that Pharaoh and Abimelech has of what has happened. Pharaoh has to do an investigation to figure out what's going on in his house. There are plagues or afflictions that are striking his entire household, and he has to go figure out why. God cuts straight to the chase with Abimelech, comes to him in a dream that opens with the words, you are going to die. That would get anyone's attention. Please, God, tell me some more. Because of the woman that you have brought into your house. In Genesis chapter 12, there's an explanation both for Abraham and for Pharaoh about why it is that Pharaoh would take Sarai at that point into his household. We're told it's because of her beauty. You're so beautiful, they will kill me. Pharaoh's officials see her and say, she's really beautiful. You should bring her into your house as your wife. Genesis 20 gives no such reason. It's like 10 years-ish later it would appear at this point, at least, that the text does not state anything about her beauty, but instead that Abimelech just exercises whatever right he has as king of the area to take this woman as his wife. Now, it's worth noting, the moral situation here is incredibly convoluted. Abraham says to himself two times, we're going to go to this place, the ruler of that place could just take you to be his wife and kill me. So adultery, bad. Murder, okay. If we kill the husband, this is no longer adultery. She's not married. 
I could take her into my house, right? The, the moral temperature here is like all over the place, but it appears to be the norm for powerful individuals at this time. We're told in the Genesis 20 account that Sarah was supernaturally protected. Abimelech says, I've done this with a clean conscience and with clean hands. I didn't know and I have not approached her. Then God says, I uh, protected her and you've not had any sort of uh, marital interaction with her. In Genesis chapter 12, it's left vague. She's taken to be Pharaoh's wife and nothing else is said about the situation. Why does it matter so much in Genesis chapter 20 that that be so clearly articulated? Because think back to Genesis 18. The Lord told Abraham and Sarah, one year from now, I will return and you will have given birth to a child. So what is Genesis 20 telling you? It is not Abimelech and Sarah who give birth to this son, Isaac. It is Abraham and Sarah. You don't need to go on a daytime talk show to prove who is the father of this child. Nothing happened between Sarah and Abimelech. Genesis 20 wants you to be certain of that. There's the interaction with servants that happens at two different times. In the Genesis 12 account, it's the servants who see that Sarah is beautiful and they alert Pharaoh to that. In the Genesis 20 account, Early in the morning, we're told after having this dream, Abimelech calls all of his servants together and they talk about what's happened and everyone is terrified. Maybe my favorite part of Genesis chapter 20 in like an irony sense is that we get Abraham's reasons or justifications for his actions. In Genesis chapter 12, you didn't get that. Pharaoh establishes moral high ground there. What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? Take your wife and go. And then Abraham just sort of between his legs and sheepishly leaves uh, the country. In this instance, Abimelech again establishes moral high ground. Verse nine, Abimelech called Abraham in and said, what have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you've brought such enormous guilt on me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that should never be done. What made you do this? Then we get Abraham's reply. And Abraham's reply is as vivid a picture of the human condition as it relates to sin as you get in scripture. Abraham replied, I thought there's absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Translation, it's kind of your fault, Abimelech. There's no fear of God here. I thought you would kill me and take her, so I lied to you. What has the passage already shown you? There's a little fear of God in Abimelech. He has this dream. He wakes up, calls all the servants together, and everyone is terrified. So it's kind of your fault, but that's actually an incorrect assumption on Abraham's part. Abraham's not done talking. Verse 12, besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Translation, it's a little bit her fault. She was foist upon me and she became my wife. I don't know how it happened. She actually sort of is my sister though. And so a little bit your fault, Abimelech, a little bit her fault, and then the trump card, verse 13. So when God had me wander, it's definitely 
his fault. We would not be in this situation, Abimelech, if God had not made me leave my home and say to my wife, every time we come into a new place, lie and say that you're my sister. A little bit your fault, a little bit her fault, definitely God's fault. We've seen that before. Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve eat from the tree. God comes to Adam and says, what have you done? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Adam says, the woman, Eve, what has happened? The serpent that you put here tempted me and I ate. And that is the human condition when it comes to the exposure of our sin. We want it to be anyone else's fault other than our own. And as no matter how ridiculous the excuses sound, we will do whatever we have to do to point the guilt to someone other than ourselves. Kind of category number seven, gifts. Gifts are given to Abraham as a bride price in the Egypt account. Pharaoh says, here are flocks and herds and camels and male and female servants as the price for taking your sister as my wife. In Gerar with Abimelech, they're given as restitution. Even though we're told that Abimelech is innocent, I did this with clean hands, my conscience is clear, and God affirms that. He still makes right with Abraham that which was wrong. His ignorance is not an excuse. And so he gives Abraham more flocks and herds to add to his already large numbers. He gives more servants to those that they acquired in Egypt. He gives a thousand pieces of silver. And he actually says this to Sarah. This is to vindicate the fact that you have not been violated in any way. This is verification that your honor is intact. Category number eight would be land. Pharaoh cannot wait for Abraham to be gone. Shame has been brought upon them and he wants Abraham out of there as quickly as possible. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 18, the last little phrase there in English is rendered, now here is your wife, take her and go. That is four words in Hebrew. Now, take, wife, go. It is like Pharaoh is just stammering, please get out of here. In Genesis chapter 20, Abimelech says, here is all of my land. Pick where you would like to live. It's the first sort of look or inkling we get of Abraham no longer wandering, but him coming into God's promise of land for him and his descendants. In Genesis chapter 12, there's an unspecified affliction or plague that comes upon Pharaoh's house. In Genesis chapter 20, we're told specifically by the end what that is. God has closed all the wombs of all the women in Abimelech's household. That would be both his wives and his concubines and also his servants. The timing here is uncertain. How long were Abraham and Sarah there? When did Abimelech have the dream? When did he realize that none of the women in his household were able to have children? The whole thing has to play out fairly quickly, right? Because we're working with one year's worth of time from Genesis 18 to when Isaac will be born in Genesis chapter 21. In between that conversation in Genesis 18, Sodom and Gomorrah happens. It would appear that Abraham and Sarah travel a little bit. They come to Gerar. Sarah is taken. Some sort of time passes. Abimelech has a dream. He realizes what's going on. But all that has to happen within three months of time, presumably, right? Because math, like nine months, 
Okay, so we gotta be inside of a year. This whole thing plays out in about three years. And then last, Abraham intercedes for Abimelech and Gerar. He does not do that in Egypt. He just packs up and leaves. Here, we're actually told in verse seven, God says that Abraham is a prophet. That's the first word of the, the word prophet in the Bible. First time it shows up. Abraham prays and God responds to Abraham's prayer accordingly. One thing worth noting here as we sort of wrap up thinking about the passage. Imagine the conundrum for Abraham as he's praying for wombs to be opened in Abimelech's household. How many times do you think he's prayed for Sarah's womb to be open since God promised him that they would have a child? Countless times, probably. Now here he is in a foreign place. He's wronged this leader and this leader's kingdom. They've been afflicted in a way in which they cannot have children. And in praying for them, he prays, God, would you open their wombs that they might have children? Would you remove that affliction from them? And it happens immediately. He's been wanting that, he and Sarah, for years in order to have a child, and it hasn't happened yet. The key sort of insight to understanding the the shift in things from Genesis 12 to Genesis 20 comes in verse 13. This is from Abraham's mouth. When God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, he's my brother. Genesis is not trying to give us an exhaustive biography of Abraham's life. It's introducing us to God, who he is, what he's like, what his plans are, what is his character, how does he interact with humanity. The question is, have they only done this twice? Wherever we go, say about me, you're my sister. Twice we get it recorded for us, once in Egypt, once in Gerar. What we have seen here by the end of Genesis chapter 20 is that what appeared to be an instance of sin is actually a pattern of sin. But what's written for us about Abraham's life is written for us not that we might understand Abraham, it's that we might know and understand God, that we might know and understand humanity, and we might know and understand how those two things are being brought back together despite the sin that puts them at odds. So what do we learn about humanity here? One of the things we're seeing as Genesis unfolds for us is that to be declared righteous, which Abraham has been, does not mean to be made sinless, which Abraham obviously is not. That's going to be a theme throughout all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament, that God's people are those who by God's grace have been declared righteous, an act of his grace and his mercy through faith in Jesus Christ, faith in in Genesis, in a child of promise. God's people are not those who by their own power have somehow become sinless. And that's an important distinction for those in the church and for those outside it. God's people are those who by God's grace have been declared righteous, not those who have become sinless. Why does that matter for those outside the church? A common criticism or critique of the capital C church has to do with the presence of sin within the people of God. Usually that criticism is leveled with the word hypocrite or something of that nature. Our primary response to those claims cannot be one of defensiveness or evasiveness. 
it can't be that we take the posture of Abraham and say, well, let me explain to you all the reasons why it is that I sinned. There was this thing, or sometimes we deflect and we say, but you do da 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 as if that somehow justifies what I did, or we try to explain the extenuating circumstances whereby, well, obviously my actions make total sense. That can't be our posture, but too often, unfortunately, it has been. If we are to have credibility with our broader cultural moment, it has to begin with an acknowledgement that we do not claim to have been made sinless. Our claim is something even more wondrous. We know that we're sinful and broken, but we also know that grace and mercy are the gift of God. We followers of Jesus, the church, are people who understand that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We, church, are those who understand that Jesus did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. So we, of all people on the face of the planet, ought to be the most eyes open about the reality of sin inside the church. We can actually beat the skeptic or beat the critic to the punch. Yes, you are absolutely right about the sinfulness and the brokenness that exists even within the church. Let me tell you the best news in that. It's that grace and mercy were never dependent upon my sinlessness. They are dependent upon the sinlessness of Jesus. Like we can, we can get to that spot before them, eyes wide open about the reality of sin. Why? Because for those inside the church, this reality ought to create a sense of humility within us. There's no room for self-righteousness among the people of God. If anyone is going to know the full scope of humanity's sinful imperfection, it ought to be those of us inside the church who are daily wrestling with our sinful imperfection. If anybody is going to be able to speak very clearly and very articulately about the reality of sin, it ought to be people inside the church who are constantly at war with the reality of sin in their own life. Genesis does this incredibly helpful thing for you in Genesis 19, says 20. Genesis 19 ends. The picture is that smoke is rising up from Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities on the plain. And Abraham steps out of his tent and he walks to this bluff or this cliff that overlooks the plain and he sees the smoke rising up there. And you could be tempted to think, ah, there's the righteous one standing in sort of condescending judgment, chuckling to himself over the reality of the sin that brought fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah except for that's not the posture because in the very next chapter, you get the clear picture that sin exists within the people of God as well. The expression is very different. The root problem is exactly the same. There's brokenness. Church, there are atheists, Muslims, secular humanists, Buddhists, Jewish people, Mormons who very likely would score higher on the morality scale than us. They might be nicer, more gentle, more kind, more patient, more generous, etc. Our righteousness is positional in Jesus. It has not made us practically perfect. 
What it ought to have made us is repentant. And that's the key distinction. We should mourn over the areas of our brokenness rather than defending it or excusing it or trying to justify it or rationalize it or heaven forbid, celebrate it. Each of us has areas of sin that we are particularly prone to lapsing into. The old-timey Christian word for what we're seeing in Abraham here is besetting sin. The definition of that is that there are sins or areas of sin that though others may not struggle, we find ourselves regularly slipping into. That's besetting sin. I like to think that it's called besetting sin because it just be setting there and I keep stumbling over it. There it is. It just be setting there and I can't help but stumble over it every single time. Right? That's what's going on here. Abraham says, we're going to tell this lie every time we find ourselves in this situation from now on and forever. And we read that and we say, dude, just don't do that. Like, it's not that hard. You see the situation, you think to yourself, just pick to do something different. Literally, you, you did this the first time, choose something different this time. And he doesn't. And the reality is that if we sat down and someone had written out the story of my life, you would read it and you would say, Tim, dude, just pick something different. You saw what happened over here when you did that. You walked into a similar situation. Just do something different. It's not that hard. And if I read the story of your life, I would say, dude, just pick something different. You've seen what happens and you're doing it again. That's besetting sin. They're different than addictions. Addiction is something that has created a biological, physiological, chemical change inside of you. Besetting sin is a habit. So you get angry and blow your top over trivial things. You use a tone that you're not proud of. You use words that you're not proud of. And you do it to the people that are the closest to you. You feel bad about it every single time, and yet it keeps happening. You find yourself gossiping about other people before you're even really aware that the conversation is happening. You feel stressed or overwhelmed, and in an attempt to escape from that or cope with it, you end up giving in to the greed of just buying stuff you know you don't need. We've given that a cute little name, retail therapy, right? It's greed, It's the gluttony of stuff that's trying to fill a void that's broken inside of yourself. You find yourself regularly battling the comparison game of coveting and jealousy. In an attempt to make yourself look a certain way or to maintain a particular reputation, you kind of reflexively lie or you just distort the truth a little bit like Abraham. Your entire intent is to be deceptive but you give yourself a little bit of an out so that on the backside you could say, it was true, it was kind of true. Besetting sins can often be tied to our temperament. Laziness, stubbornness, maybe we're given to harsh skepticism, maybe there's like a strain of self-sufficiency or perfectionism that runs inside of us that causes us to sin in particular ways, maybe there's a desire for self-indulgence, and something about our temperament means that something is just sitting there and we constantly stumble over it. But followers of Jesus are to be repentant people. And that includes 
wrestling to repent and walk differently from even the sins that seem most simple for us to fall into. Martin Luther said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so the question becomes, how do we move toward repentance in the areas of these sins that seem so entrenched and so reflexive in our lives? What does repentance involve after being in a place like this and we sort of renounce, you know, like, ah, yes, I sin in that way. I repent. Now what? Like, how do we actually put that into practice? And so I'm gonna offer five thoughts from Kevin to Young from Kevin to Young he's a he's a pastor on the east coast these are not like the foolproof way to never fall into your besetting sin again these are handles that you can grab hold of as you try to wrestle with the reality of that sin in your life i do not want to present this as a formula that's going to fix it for you it will be the power of the spirit of god at work inside of you that ultimately sanctifies you from these sins but these are practical things that are helpful in that process number 1 recognize the pattern what are the situations that typically cause me to do this, right? Abraham knows the pattern. He's already said it out loud. Every time we come into a new place, say that you are my sister. So what are the situations? It feels a little bit odd to be reflective about our sin. I caved to this particular temptation I've navigated through or I'm in the midst of navigating through whatever the consequences or the outworkings are of that sin and now I'm gonna sit down and reflect on it. What's the situation that typically causes me to do that? When am I most apt to blowing up in rage? What causes me to dive into the greed of retail therapy? Like, What goes on? Be reflective. What is the situation? And then remember the outcome. What's the typical result of that. It should only take a human being one time of being called before the most powerful person in a region and dressed down by them to think, I want to avoid that in the future. I don't ever want to walk into Pharaoh's throne room ever again and have him ask why it is that I've brought such shame and dishonor upon his house, right? What's the pattern? What's the typical outcome What's the result of that? And then realize you have a choice. You are not slave to your sin. You can choose to do something different. Look, every single one of the sins in your life was your choice. That's heavy, but it's good because it means that every act of obedience is also your choice. You can choose to do something other than sin. It's at this point that it's helpful to remind yourself of the gospel. What is the actual power inside of me to change? We have to remember that it is not our willpower or our discipline that's going to win the day. We have to remind our heart that the killing of our sin is a spiritual matter and that in all spiritual things, we rely on Jesus and the gospel, not upon ourselves. So what are some gospel reminders that you could give yourself? Different Reminders might prove helpful to different people or in different situations. But here are a few of them. You could remind yourself that in Christ you have a new love and that a longing for the things of the world need not constrain you to the things of the world. Why? Because your primary longing is no longer after the world. Thanks to the gospel and the work of Christ, your primary longing is after him. You have a new love and you can give yourself over to that love 
which is greater than anything in this world could possibly provide for you. Charles Spurgeon says, where two hearts are bound together in the bonds of love, they are quite sure to endeavor to remove everything out of the way that would cause pain to the other. That's a two-way street. God in his love for you, brother or sister in Christ, is committed to removing everything from your life that would cause you pain. Every sin in your life is ultimately going to cause you pain. And God is committed to removing that from you that you might not harm yourself any longer. And that street runs the other way. You've got a new love. You don't have to kill your besetting sins in order to be saved. You've been saved, declared righteous by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And out of that love now, you can seek to remove from your life all things that would grieve him. Your sin. You're not doing that to earn his love. You're doing it because you have his love. You could also remind yourself that in Christ, you have forgiveness from sin. And therefore, shame need not stop you from repenting. What do I mean by that? You have actual, definitive, permanent forgiveness, not just from sin as a construct, but from your specific acts of sin. They've actually been forgiven, which means you not, need not be bogged down, right? Romans says there's, no, there's now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. You not, need not carry around the shame of your sin to the point where you say, look, I know I fall to this every time. God knows I fall to this every time. And I'm so embarrassed and shame-filled about it that rather than address it, I'd rather just continue on in it because that's just who I am. I'm just broken in that particular way. No, you're The good news of the gospel is that you're not. You have actual forgiveness from your actual acts of sin. They've been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. And you can walk in the forgiveness rather than in the shame. You might need to remind yourself that in Christ you have died to sin. And now the boundaries of your own limitations need not limit you. When we baptized people a few weeks ago, what do we say? Buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in a newness of life. You are something new now. And there's a real power that lives inside of you. And it is no longer your self-discipline or self-control or willpower that's going to help you walk away from sin. That died with you when you were saved. What is now brought to life inside of you is the very power of Jesus Christ who walked out of the grave and when he did so, stomped on your besetting sin. That's what lives inside of you. And now it's not about your willpower to walk away from your sin. The gospel tells you it is about his power at work inside of you. You might need the gospel reminder that in Christ you have a new ruler and you not need be ruled by sin any longer. You've come under the lordship of Christ. You're no longer enslaved to your fleshly desires or to the things of this world because you've got a new master who has set you free. So give yourself gospel reminders. It is the power of the gospel that will sanctify the sin inside of you, not the power of your willpower. Last, respond in obedience. Recognize the pattern, remember the outcome, realize you have a choice, remind yourself of the gospel, and then In choosing your choice, choose obedience. 
for everything that we can learn about Abraham and humanity in this passage and in Abraham's sin, the biggest points and lessons in any passage of scripture are always about God. I mentioned this at the start. It's where I want to end. God's plans and promises are not deterred by the sins of the world, Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, or by the sins of his people, Genesis 20, Abraham. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was no challenge to God's plans and promises. The sin of Abraham is no challenge to the plans and promises of God. The sin of Lot, the sin of Noah, the sin of Cain, the sin of Adam. You could go forward. Isaac's sins, Jacob's sins, Israel's sins, Israel's king's sins, the disciples' sins, the early church's sins, the modern church's sins are no deterrent to the God of the universe fulfilling his plans and his promises for his glory in and through his people. Amen? That is such good news. And yet, here's the other side of it. The certainty of God's promises cannot create passivity in God's people. Romans chapter six. Do we sin all the more so that grace can abound? Paul's response, absolutely not, exclamation point. Why? Because we're called to be reflections of the beauty and the wonder of God's very character in the world that he has created. We're called to walk in the light as he is in the light. We're called to be holy as he is holy. We're called to walk and live in the way of Jesus. We're called to have a zeal for a humble kind of holiness that motivates us, and all of that is undergirded by the power of the Spirit. And so our zeal for holiness flows from the work of the Son on our behalf. Our zeal for holiness flows from an awe that we have for the the creator Father, the God of the universe. Our zeal for holiness flows from the presence of the Spirit alive and at work inside of us. Our zeal for holiness flows from a passion for God's glory and from a faith in a God who will care for us as he knows best as he accomplishes everything he has planned. That means we don't need to try to care for ourselves via a sin that wants to destroy us. Unlike Abraham, We can look at our besetting sin and say, every time I come into this situation, rather than caring for myself via a sin that wants to kill me, I'm going to allow God to care for me as he fulfills his promises in and through me according to the power of the gospel. I will choose obedience rather than stumble over the sin that just besetting there. Amen? Amen, let's pray. God, thank you for your son. God, thank you that in him we have real forgiveness. God, thank you that in him we have a new love. That in him we've died to sin and it need not rule us any longer. God, thank you that in him we have the power to actually get freedom from our sin and to walk away from it, God. Thank you that in him we've been declared righteous without having to prove our righteousness. God, would you help us to be honest and eyes wide open about the reality of sin in our own lives and the lives of the church? God, would you help us not to be defensive about that, but instead to be humble in our longing for zeal and holiness, to be repentant people who are willing to acknowledge and walk away from our sin that we might live in obedience to you. God, we thank you that your plans and your promises cannot be deterred in any way. God, and we pray that as you help us to grow in holiness, God, that we would just get to watch in awe as you fulfill that which you have promised in and through your people to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.